good Wednesday morning, and today we will be talking with John Patrick about altruism. Uh, today, I, I really want to introduce you to a favorite author of mine, David Stove. Um, he's dead now. He committed suicide when he found he'd got cancer, but he was Australia's best philosopher uh, of the last little while, analytical philosopher. And he wrote a, a wonderful book called Darwinian Fairy Tales. And to give you a sense, I'm just going to read one or two of the the great names that have read this book and what they say about it. I love Harvey Mansfield from Harvard, and this is what he said. David Stove is thoughtful, trenchant, sharp, wonderfully disrespectful of the established parties of our time. He's also a treat to read, which is true. Uh, here's uh, another uh, critic or non-critic. David Stove took no intellectual prisoners. A deadly serious and often a hilariously funner funny enemy of intellectual cant and the higher pretensions he wrote to kill. In the process he demonstrated what has come to seem questionable that professional philosophers can still make a vital contribution to the public debate. Uh, he does. And uh, he says uh, in this book um, that Whatever else is true about evolution, he thinks evolution happens, so do I at the micro level. Um, things have changed since he died. But he said there's one thing that clearly is absolutely not true, and that is that evolution describes us, human beings. We don't fill the niche that Darwin says we should at all. And this book is precisely a series of essays showing why you're not actually a Darwinian. And you can actually find on the web somewhere 10 reasons that you're not a Darwinian by David Stove and get it in a single paper rather than a book. But uh, altruism is the key test because if Darwin is right, everything is a battle between uh, fellow creatures. We're all striving to see our genes are dominant. Now that might describe the way things work in pine trees and codfish, but it doesn't describe us. Altruism is a real phenomenon in human beings. Beyond kin altruism, beyond the family, we do good things every now and again, kind things, for no benefit whatsoever, to people we will never see again. And that's wonderful. Uh, and no other animal does that in that way. An example perhaps makes it clear. Uh, many years ago, my wife and I were taking uh, our children, four of them, and a friend's five children on a trip in uh, New Hampshire and Vermont. And anyway, we were in a, a restaurant one morning, all all uh, uh, nine children. And as uh, as we finished our pancakes and the rest. A couple had been watching us and they came over and said, your nine children all behave perfectly. Uh, that's not usual in American children. Uh, can you explain? And we talked a little bit and they discovered that we were just uh, wandering around. We hadn't decided what we we're going to do. And they said, well, we're just going home and I forget where they were going to. But we have a cabin. If you want to use it, you can because the key is there. They'd never met us before. They'd just watched us over breakfast 
and they gave us instructions about where to find their cabin and where to find the key and we went and had three lovely days there they'd never seen us before and sadly I, I forgot to collect their address so I've never been able to thank them as I wish but that's, that's altruism, people turning up out of nowhere uh, and doing something that was good simply because it was good Another lovely example a few years ago from Italy where a woman attempted suicide by jumping into a river and an African uh, crossing the bridge saw her and immediately dived in and rescued her. Got her to the shore and, and then he disappeared. Uh, people wanted to thank him. They wanted to know about him. They realized, of course, he must be an illegal immigrant. But they tracked him down. Eventually he was rewarded. He, he got his immigration papers. But not only did he do something that brought him no benefit, it did, he did something that put him in at risk. And we do that. We jump in front of traffic to pull a child out of the way when there's a risk involved in doing that. Um, that's a human characteristic. I think it's part of the image of God uh, is the way a Christian would describe it. But it, it shouldn't happen if Darwin is right. It, it's counterproductive. Now, how to illustrate that? The illustration I normally use, and it works perfectly well, is to ask someone, in this case it'll have to be you, because you're the only person I can see at the moment, but I want you to imagine, I hope they can see you occasionally as well, that you can split the screen and have both of us at this point. It would be fun. Um, I want you to imagine that um, this week in my laboratory I discovered a cure for a cancer which you have but nobody knows I've discovered this cancer and my problem is that you're a wealthy man and when you die I inherit your estate ought I to give you the cure this week now if I'm a Darwinian and there's a battle between your genes and mine the answer must be definitely no I should allow you to die so that I get your estate which will be quick because it will take some years to get the money from my cure and nobody will ever know what I did. But we all know that's wrong as human beings. We shouldn't do that. Everybody knows we ought not to do that. So how does Darwin explain it? He doesn't. As he doesn't explain many things. I mean there's no question that the evolutionary process as he imagined it happens at the species level. Anybody who doesn't accept that is simply ignorant. But how much more it will explain we don't know. But altruism is, is where a Christian should start talking about where did it come from? And we have allowed the world that we produce to be taken away from us because we were basically lazy intellectually. And that has to change. In medicine is in deep trouble now because uh, we're being bullied by bureaucrats at the risk of you losing your job into killing people. Got to do your share. Now a Christian can't do that. His soul's at stake and I've had many heart-rending emails from people struggling with this and having to change the bit of medicine they do so there's no possibility of doing it. They're having their lives disrupted by bureaucrats in a distant office who have a, a view of the world that they don't realize is religious. There's no such thing as a multicultural patient. They don't exist. Because 
our culture at the level that it impinges on life and death and suffering is individual. Everybody has a, a view of the world that determines how they look at death and suffering. Uh, the secularist is religious at that point. His belief that you can be morally neutral is rubbish. It's not, it doesn't exist because you cannot live without the word ought in your life. Ought is necessary. You can't imagine bringing up a family without being able to say to the children you ought to do this and you ought not to do that. But ought can't be derived from physical facts. Ought is without a physical basis. That's what's so wonderful about it. It's real, but it doesn't exist physically. Science, qua science, has nothing to say about ought. The subjunctive tense and that whole mysterious world of moral reality, it can be described by science, but not understood. So medicine, where you have a one-on-one -on -one relationship, when a patient comes to see you, and say you have to tell them that they've got they've got to die. Auden's lovely line, and he wanted a physician who, with his, with a twinkle in his eye, will tell me that I have to die, uh, because he could relate to that physician. Now, in order to talk to somebody about the fact that they're going to die, you need to know what they believe, because it will make a huge difference. People die differently depending upon what they believe. The most effective way of getting medical students who, who are willing to do it to see the reality of this is to say, look, never pass up on an opportunity to be present when a Christian dies. You don't know what's going to happen. Sometimes they just quietly go. But every now and again, uh, you will have a, a moment you will remember for the rest of your life. Because God shows up. Uh, my favorite example of this is from a a friend who ran the pediatric oncology program at Yale. Like me, she grew up in a Bible-believing home and like me went to university and sidelined faith. I never ceased to believe, but I ceased to practice. She ceased to believe, she thought. She didn't, of course, and became an existentialist, which is one way of coping. But she was very smart and she wasn't... Uh, uh, very pretty, I think she'd accept that. Uh, and so she she knew she was unlikely to get married because she intimidated the men that she would be willing to marry because she wanted someone she could argue and talk to. And there aren't too many of them around. But she loved children. So she went into pediatrics. She ended up running the pediatric oncology program at Yale and wrote a lovely book called A Window on Heaven about what happened to her. Um, now, if you're doing oncology, cancer treatment, then you're going to deal with death. So here we have an, an unbelieving secularist woman, an existentialist. Uh, what does she say to a child who is dying? She has nothing to say. This is absurd, but it's the way life is. I'm glad you're dying and not me. That would be a truthful description of her position, but it's neither nice nor kind. And for no reason from her existentialism, she was a nice, kind person, so she didn't say it. She did what doctors do in that situation. She left the social worker to get neurotic and just very casually didn't get involved because she'd failed. This little girl 
uh, was dying of leukemia. Nowadays you would save most of them, but this was some years ago. And about the same time, her mother started getting on her case in her head, so to speak, saying, Diane, I didn't bring you up to desert your new love when they're dying. You should be there. You love them. She knew she did. So she started to think about it and decided she'd do it. And this little girl was the first child she sat with uh, at the end. Not as a doctor, she'd failed there, but just to be there. And just before she died, this little girl woke up. It's commoner in paediatrics than it is elsewhere, but it happens all over the place. A lucid interval before you die. Where you say goodbye, in effect. But this little girl, fading away in a terminal coma, and then suddenly woke up and said, Mommy, can you see the angels? Can you hear their singing? It's beautiful. And she was gone. Just like that. Now, if you don't tear up a little bit with that, there's something wrong with your heart. Not the one that's beating, but the one that feels. And she knew she had met a reality with which I must have touched something uh, because you've disappeared, but hopefully I haven't disappeared to you. Um, oh, I've come back. It was the book just touching the edge of the uh, the manipulating device. So she had to deal with that and she it took three more children to bring her back to faith and as she said i was an arrogant yale professor so god used a little guy with an iq of less than 100 a down syndrome child to bring me to my knees because they also have more leukemia than normal people so leukemia is not uncommon amongst uh, down syndrome ch children and this child from a christian family uh, got that. Now, they're very loving kids. When they hear that Jesus loved them, they love back. Uh, it's a very naive faith, if you like. That doesn't mean it isn't real. And uh, parents knew they couldn't explain uh, leukemia to him, so they said, look, uh, Jesus is going to take you to be with him before we go. So you're going to be first in heaven and we'll join you later. Do you think he was upset at that project? Not at all. He understood it. But he also understood that his doctor, whom he called Auntie Diane, was actually very upset that he was dying. And one night he said to his mother, Auntie Diane is upset that I'm going to die and be with Jesus. Tell her not to be upset. Tell her it's all right. I'm going to be with Jesus and I want her to come too. Well, when that message was relayed to her, it came through under the radar and she was back in the kingdom. That element of life uh, that we cannot describe but we cannot deny, if we're honest, is so important. Altruism, death, dying, crises of various sorts allow it to shine through. But we need, as Christians, to be able to talk about it we don't ask the question, well, what do you believe about what happens to you when you die? And what's your basis for thinking that? Have you got any examples? There are examples. There have been quite a lot now, of course, with, with um, uh, the way that we have people on the operating table for a long while. We try and get their heart going. And they have these out-of-body experiences. And they, they change people's lives. 
including very reductionistic atheist doctors. Uh, the one that springs to mind is of a, a woman where they had real trouble and so she was in the OR for hours and she has the, the standard thing of having the sense of being on the, the ceiling of the OR watching the surgeon operate on her heart. But she's watching it. And she was there so long, she said, I actually floated outside the OR and outside the hospital and I was going along and I saw a pair of running shoes on a, a windowsill and she described them and then they got her back. And when she told this story to the, the, the surgeon, he said, oh, it's rubbish, that's easy to prove. But when he went and looked, you know what happened. The shoes were there. How could she know that? We have got too certain that our knowledge is all-inclusive. We have lots of knowledge that's good, but it's, it's, there's always loose edges, bits that we need to take notice of that don't fit in our understanding. The time when you shout Eureka as a research scientist is when something turns up that doesn't fit in your current understanding. That the current model is clearly under stress and in fact it's going to be destroyed. Um, famously Kuhn, who's, uh, he made more of it than he should, but his book, uh, The Nature of Scientific Revolution and the Idea of the Paradigm, which everybody's heard of, came about from his honesty about this, that changes in science when they happen are shifts. They're not inch by inch, not adding little bit to little bit. Suddenly there's a flip and you've got a whole new world. Uh, and in that book he describes how um, in the early part of the 20th century physicists thought basically that physics was done and dusted and they were a bit bored with their job. And then Einstein came along and he just uses some of their correspondence to say I, I can't wait to get back to the laboratory tomorrow. Overnight their world had changed because the model had been flipped. We're, we're not opposed to science in any way. We're opposed to scientism. That's what's happened in the COVID thing. That was scientism. People with no sense of this aspect of life, which is so important, the humanity of life, which includes death and handles it, got sidelined completely. So they didn't even think about any other consequences of COVID than we've got to beat this Infection. Uh, anybody who knew anything about anything knew that coronaviruses aren't beaten in that way. The Brits tried forever and failed. It was the common cold, which is frequently a coronavirus. No, uh, and we haven't beaten it. We're not going to beat it. It'll be back again in this, later this year. Uh, we'll learn to live with it. Clearly, some people are very vulnerable and others are less vulnerable. But now the excess deaths uh, in some age groups, death caused by immunization is greater than what was saved by immunization. And that's for people who had a productive life before them. Where it's worked very well, of course, is keeping granny alive for two or three more years. But that's not the price is not worth it. It's the failure of what Tom Sowell constantly says, that when you're looking at these things like public policy and how you understand things, you've got to start in a, a rational fashion. When you think you're going to change the way you do things, 
Before you do it, ask what other options are there, including doing nothing, and then ask, will there be any problems? Now, if they had simply asked that question, what, will there be problems from masking and lockdowns? It, it, it's evident you don't need to be brilliant to see it'll have huge impacts. And it is. In those children who were in high school and, and in early school who were masked and had their lives disrupted and had distance learning, they're not going to be the same kids as ordinary kids. And I've seen this and all the people I talk to who are trying to teach uh, the end of high school, the beginning of university, it's all changed. They're, they're flat. They've been robbed of their commitment. Uh, this is the failure to ask the questions that need to be asked. Where did, where did I come from? Creation. Why am I here? The feeling of oughtedness that we ought to do certain things and not others. Where am I going? How do we understand death and suffering? Uh, we have answers. They're not nice answers, they're, but they're human answers and they're real. Uh, but the Bible is very clear. It says Jesus endured the cross because he saw what was coming and it was worthwhile. The walk to the cross was a triumphal march. Who for the hope that is within us. Uh, that aspect of life we don't make much of in church because we don't talk about it very much. Instead we're nice all the while. Jesus wasn't nice all the while. He talked to the hypocrites and said, you whited sepulchres. White on the outside and death and corruption on the inside. No, he could be very direct indeed, but never nasty. Just trying to wake people up. But we've sort of, I don't, know, I don't even know how to describe it, but we've, we've turned the church into a social club where nobody says anything to upset anyone else. It should be a place where there's constant argument. Because to use my favorite line from Milton, where there is a great desire to know, there of necessity there must be much argument. For argument amongst good men is but knowledge in the making. A church that isn't arguing vigorously about the meaning of scripture is not alive, it's dead. It's time to change that. I think I've said more than enough today. It's probably got rid of half the people who've ever listened to me, but that's as it goes. Thank you guys so much for watching. We hope you enjoyed this. If you are enjoying it, feel free to leave a review or subscribe on YouTube. If you have a question for Dr. John, you can check the links down below or you can go to www.johnpatrick.ca forward slash ask. We'll see you guys next week.